TikTok is struggling to shake off fears about links to the Chinese state in the midst of rising tensions between China and other countries over technology, security, privacy and trade. What can a video sharing app do to restore confidence? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, why has the pandemic meant some households are flush with cash? The general picture, at least in the rich world, is this big increase in household savings ratios, this big increase in retail deposits in banks. And what's the key to better business judgments? Expertise is very much part of judgment. The key is whether the expertise is relevant. First, TikTok is battling against plans by some governments to ban the video sharing app. The Chinese-owned social platform has become hugely popular with over 2 billion downloads worldwide. Catchy jingles and dance challenges have ensured the app's success, but now it faces a backlash over concerns about its links to the Chinese government. TikTok has faced a really abrupt shift in mood. Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor. It was only about a month ago that everything was going right. As you mentioned, the download rate has been extraordinary. But just a few weeks ago, the company's parent, ByteDance, started getting very different messages from the US government. There's a possibility of an outright ban in America um, or a forced divestment by ByteDance of the app. ByteDance, as you know, it's the world's most valuable private company. It just got a valuation of $140 billion. And the thing is that the company's crown jewel is TikTok. It accounts for a large chunk of that $140 billion valuation. So this is really sort of not, it's not existential for ByteDance, but this threat of a ban or a divestment has the potential to really change the future trajectory of one of the world's most fascinating companies. America isn't the only nation thinking about this. What about other countries? The situation in India is slightly different, where I think the ban on TikTok and other Chinese apps is more a kind of direct retaliation in the wake of India-Chinese military skirmishes in the Himalayas. Another country where TikTok is facing immediate trouble is Australia, where, again, the app's Chinese ownership is certainly emerging as an issue for politicians. Let's concentrate for now on TikTok's difficulties in America, which, as you said, have become particularly acute over the past few weeks. Now, restricting an app or banning it outright is something that America and indeed other Western countries might normally criticise the Chinese for. So why is America reacting in this way, do you think? I think the number one concern is about data security. Chinese apps do have a reputation for taking a lot of personal detail when people download them. And of course, this is something that every big platform does. But of course, this is a lot more sensitive when it's a Chinese company. And, you know, China's intelligence services do have form in terms of getting large data sets on Americans and being able to cross check them and glean useful intelligence from them. 
The second concern is a broader one about, you know, what's it like when a foreign power just amasses such an enormous scale of audience among your youth? So the second worry is really about propaganda, political meddling. So for several months, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has been looking into TikTok's merger with Musical.ly, a Chinese app which it bought. But that investigation was going pretty well and was expected to result in kind of nothing that drastic. And then suddenly a few weeks ago, the mood changed. I think ByteDance and other observers, I mean, they, they put this down to a few factors. One is that, you know, America is experiencing the second coronavirus wave which is influencing President Donald Trump's election prospects. So there's some sort of sense that maybe taking action against a Chinese firm might be helpful in that regard. As you mentioned, Tamsin, the primary concern of the Americans is about security and privacy over data. So do we know how significant those are and how genuine those are and what sort of data are vulnerable on TikTok? It's stuff like your list of social network contacts, your IP address, your phone number, everything that you upload to TikTok. If you're someone who's uploaded something that the content moderators decide is beyond the pale in terms of sexual content, violence, etc., China could have access to that information. And another worry you mentioned was that TikTok might be used or might have been guilty of uh, spreading propaganda or of skewing its content in particular ways. What's the evidence there? So TikTok's really brilliant innovation is its content selection is done by an algorithm. But algorithms are a bit of a black box. So there's no way you can tell why it's serving up particular content. There's no evidence so far that TikTok has tried to funnel particular content to anyone. But the worry is that there's just no way of telling. And it's not hard to imagine hypothetical scenarios where that could be exploited. In June, TikTok users basically sabotaged a Trump campaign rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They reserved loads of tickets and then didn't show up. And they did this on the inspiration of a video from Mary Jo Laup. She was a political campaigning expert who spotted this loophole that people could use if they're anti-Trump. And and of course, you know, it's highly unlikely, I guess, that the algorithm would have deliberately emphasised her video, but it could have done. There's just no way of telling. You know, TikTok users are actually quite political and activists, so it's definitely a useful platform if there were a foreign power wanting to have influence. What about affairs closer to home in China? TikTok is also known to have blocked a teenager who is discussing China's atrocities in Xinjiang. It has moderated out discussion of subjects like Tibet and Tiananmen Square. The moderation guidelines have been changed, I believe, but the fact that they were there at one point leads you to think about what they might change to in future. And how is TikTok trying to overcome these problems? So they really do think they might face a ban They also think there could be a kind of forced divestment of TikTok America. So the first thing they're working on, and they've already been putting this in place, is they've put the servers outside China 
They've hired a lot of Western executives, including notably Kevin Mayer, who was expected possibly to become the CEO of Disney. You couldn't get anyone more American than that. So they've done a lot of stuff on the human resources front and a certain amount on the data security front. They're also opening a data transparency center in Los Angeles. So they've already been working on this. And that's because of the CFIUS scrutiny that was ongoing. They think it's quite likely that they will have to make some kind of structural capital market separation between TikTok and ByteDance. And so I think it's entirely likely that you could see a spin-off of the American bit of TikTok, for example, with ByteDance perhaps holding under a 50% stake. And you're probably going to see more technological separation between TikTok and its parent in Beijing. And I guess one question is, you know, how well TikTok continues to do, because there's no question that a large amount of its success has come from the brilliance of the software engineers and the algorithm and and just the innovation that has come from China. Townsend Booth, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can read more about the furore over Chinese tech firms in Townsend's story in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer and subscribe to the best introductory offer wherever you are. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. You can find the link in the show notes. Next, economic crises in the past have often involved runs on banks. But this time, the uncertainties caused by COVID-19 have had a rather different effect. The enforced closures of shops, pubs and restaurants have left households saving their money, or awash with cash. Households across the rich world have suddenly found themselves, in many cases, with a lot more cash. Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent. The amount of money they've got stuck into bank accounts has risen by something like two to three percentage points of GDP in the past three or four months. Duncan, in this week's issue, you looked at Britain in the first instance. So what's caused the big shift there? So in Britain, the nature of this recession has been really unusual. In fact, in many ways, completely unprecedented. So although we've got this huge hit to GDP, you know, the biggest collapse in GDP in, well, since the 1700s, the statisticians think, unemployment still remains relatively low. And the government has taken all sorts of extraordinary measures to protect households from the hit. So more than 12 million workers are getting their wages topped up by the government. So although we've got this big hit to GDP, household income has fallen much more modestly. But of course, much of the economy has been closed down by government order. And even though things are starting to open up now, people still don't feel as confident going to shops, going to restaurants. More people are working from home and not spending money on travel. So effectively, households have just been forced into this huge amount of involuntary saving And that money is just now parked in the bank with these unprecedented increases in the size of household bank deposits. Now, I guess that this is a fairly global story, that this would be true in the rest of the world as well. Is that right? Yeah, if you look around the rich world, we're seeing a similar thing. You know, various central banks give quite timely, usually monthly numbers on how much retail bank deposits are increasing in their banking sectors. And in Europe, the picture is very similar to Britain. You're seeing this big pickup in household um, bank deposits. Slightly more nuanced picture in the US where the government has taken a different approach on the labour market. So we've seen a 
a bigger leap in unemployment, but still there are plenty of Americans who have seen their you know, monthly spending collapse as they're no longer driving, they're no longer commuting as much, they're not spending as much on restaurants, not spending as much on um, household services, on hospitality, on retail. So yeah, the general picture, at least in the rich world, is this big increase in household savings ratios, this big increase in retail deposits in banks. And what about the other side of households' balance sheets? At the same time as people are saving more, are they also borrowing less? Yeah, the picture's quite nuanced. So in most countries, consumer credit, you know, lending to households to finance spending has been contracting. But although you're getting these sort of net repayments of household debt at an aggregate level, when you actually look at the data in most countries, the gross amount households pay each month in repayments has actually been falling. People aren't rushing in many cases to pay off their credit card bills. They're paying off maybe slightly less in some cases in aggregate than they were before. But because new lending has fallen even faster, what you're seeing is this contraction in consumer credit. And just to be clear, the money is actually staying in people's bank accounts, isn't it? Despite the fact that interest rates are, are so low. So people aren't then putting it into the stock market or into, into riskier investments. Does that tell us something about people's motives for, for bulking up their savings so much? I think the key point is that lots of this was involuntary. You know, people didn't decide in many cases to start saving more. It's just they couldn't spend money on the things they were previously spending money on because those things were either originally closed in many cases by government order. And even as they've started to open up, capacity is lower. People feel a bit cautious about going out where there are lots of people. So I don't think people are trying to put this money to work in the stock market. So yeah, it's in most cases ending up in bank accounts. And even though inflation seems to be quite low, seems to have fallen during the pandemic, obviously interest rates have fallen by a lot more. So in real terms, people are you know making a negative return on these savings. So we've got this general picture of a much higher savings rate, but is it actually true for everybody? Are there some people who've actually got less money in their bank account are actually dissaving during the pandemic? I mean, absolutely. If we just look at Britain, what we can see is in aggregate, the amount of cash in banks has, you know, as we said, soared. But actually, when you start looking specifically across the income spectrum of different working age households, the picture, of course, becomes a lot more nuanced. Because the people who have cut back on their discretionary spending and are saving a lot of money are those who were making discretionary spending. If you were already a a low owner and you didn't have much discretionary spending to cut back on, you can't cut back. And even though the falls in income have been quite modest relative to the falls in GDP, for households lower down the income spectrum, their small falls in income can't be offset by falls in spending, particularly when we've seen things like the schools being closed for so long. So, you know, many families with kids have had more mouths to feed during the week. In some cases, their spending is actually you know, risen despite modest falls in income. And of course, in the United States, where we've seen this large increase in unemployment, we can already start to see things like missed mortgage and rent payments are on the rise. So the picture varies there a bit between America and Europe as well. Now, a question that policymakers and economists, and of course, journalists will want to be able to answer is, what's going to happen as lockdowns start to ease and economies open up, are people going to be spending this money that they've saved over the past couple of months, or are they still going to be pretty cautious, do you think? I think I'm going to take the cop-out answer there and say it's going to be a bit of a mixture. 
a lot of this rise in savings was involuntary. But I think that's now transforming slightly to what we can think of as precautionary saving. You know, across the world, it looks like in lots of countries, unemployment may have further to rise. A lot of people are worried about their jobs. And when they're worried about their jobs, when they're worried about a rise in unemployment, they're probably actually quite happy to have a bit more of a financial cushion built up. Of course, there are some people splashing out a bit more. One thing we are seeing in a lot of retail sales numbers around the world is a surprisingly strong bounce in spending on sort of goods. But I think partially that's a substitution effect because households are spending a lot less on services than they used to. So yeah, you know, maybe people aren't spending as much commuting on their train fares, they're not buying as much coffee in cafes, they're making their own lunch and saving money. That's all less money they're spending on services and maybe they're going to buy themselves some nicer garden furniture. Now they're spending a lot more time at home. Duncan Weldon, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, what is good judgment in business? And finally, you've had the good judgment to listen to Money Talks. Believe it or not, that's not the only judgment that matters. Business leaders have had to make more frequent and more consequential judgments throughout the pandemic. But what exactly is good judgment and how is it achieved? Judgment. It's the combination of personal qualities with relevant knowledge and experience to form an opinion or take a decision. Sir Andrew Lickerman of the London Business School has spent a long time trying to answer this question. He spoke to my colleague Simon Long about the nature of judgment. Simon started by asking him how the pandemic has changed the way people recognise good judgment. Obviously, at a time like this, when so much is uncertain, my belief that judgment is crucial in making some sense of the choices which we all face. And one of the things I've been emphasising is thinking about the trade-offs between how much information you have and the speed at which you take decisions. I've been watching a number of organisations take decisions, I thought, rather too quickly without the necessary information. They didn't have to. And other people have waited until they've got better sense of what's going on in these very uncertain times. In some cases, for example, people have decided about what the recovery looks like. And so they've started to make long-term plans without really a sense of whether those long-term plans are based in some kind of evidence from the course of the pandemic. And what sort of individual is a maker of good judgments? My suggestion is there are some things you can look for and there are some things you can do yourself to try and improve your own judgment. First of all is the question, do you take information in, really take it in? Do you listen? And when you read something, do you really take in what you read? Number two is about the question of who one trusts and what one trusts. And somebody with good judgment will be trying to make quite sure they can trust what they hear from somebody and what they get from other sources. The third element is this relevant knowledge. Understanding maybe one hasn't got enough, maybe one has. Having a very clear idea what it is one's got. The fourth one is about one's feelings and beliefs. So rather than being swept along by feelings and beliefs, does one understand what they are and understand that they are there, but it's very important to understand what they are and not let those completely dominate. There's the choice element, number five, which is the way in which we make our choices, bringing the facts together, understanding what's going on, 
looking at the risks involved and so on. And finally, there's the question, can you actually deliver it? You know, we may have all the best will in the world to take the garbage out in the evening, but somehow it doesn't happen. One obvious gap from that list was expertise, deep knowledge of a particular subject. Was that a, a deliberate omission or just it comes lower down your list? Not at all. Expertise is very much part of judgment. The key is whether the expertise is relevant. Lots of people have got expertise in many different fields, but what you need is something that is relevant to this particular choice. And my advice is take a good hard look at whether you actually have got the expertise yourself. And if you haven't, my advice is go and find someone who has. When I look at good decisions I've made, it's almost always in retrospect being a matter of blind luck. I'm sure you're being too modest. <laughs> but how, how do you distinguish good judgment making from good luck? Of course, we all love to take credit for the things that go well. And of course, we ascribe everything that goes wrong to bad luck. So luck, I'm absolutely sure, plays a key part in almost all aspects of life and what we do. And as I say, that means that we can't simply judge the outcome, say that was good judgment or bad judgment. What this is about is saying you'll do the best you can to get the best outcome. But we have to recognize that luck also plays a part. Could artificial intelligence do a much better job at making judgments than we do? I'm going to be publishing on this later, but at the moment, my sense is I don't think that a machine can exercise judgment. It can do many wonderful things. And it can substitute for judgment, but it can't do judgment itself. Yet? Or is that an absolute? Well, no, yet is a very, very long time. Well, you know, one thinks about indefinitely. What we know is that there have been very inaccurate predictions, both over optimistic and over pessimistic in this way. But I think within the foreseeable future, from what I can see so far, and I've been reading the literature a lot, I don't believe that judgment, as I've defined it, can be exercised by a machine. So, Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist.